Your mom's a swoof. My name is Sarah Jones, and this is my podcast, Your Mom's a Sleuth, where I talk about everything from murder to motherhood. Listen in as I give you the details you haven't heard on the news yet, right here on Your Mom's a Sleuth. Hello and welcome to the 10th episode, the one year anniversary of Your Mom's a Sleuth. My name is Sarah Jones, and I am so excited to be sitting here recording this episode. I'm excited because this is one year to the day that my podcast was released. And I can't even tell you how much the support has meant to me over the past year, the encouragement stopping me wherever I am and telling me how much you love listening to it. I know that I only have 10 little baby episodes But for me being a very busy stay at home mom, and never having put myself out here like this, this has just been such an incredible journey for me. And I'm very proud of myself patting myself on the back. Thank you very much. But also just super, super touched to hear all of that from you guys. It's it's I can't I just can't even say how much it means to me. I mean, aside from hearing from you all in person, I use Buzzsprout as my main platform for uploading this podcast. And they do a great job of telling me, you know, where people are from, who's listening, how often and I have to date almost 1400 downloads of my podcast. And I know that doesn't make me Alex Cooper exactly. But for little old me that just feels like a huge accomplishment. I have listeners in nine total countries and territories, including the United States, Canada, Poland, Germany, Australia, New Zealand, uh, the UK, Spain, and Italy. And I have 203 cities where people are listening to this podcast. So thank you all so much for tuning in and encouraging me to continue on this journey I know it has been a slow year because we started talking about this murder in Idaho and the arrest of Brian Koberger. That's where this really jumped off. And since then, information has been at a slow drip, to say the least. So I really appreciate you guys hanging on every single thing that I'm telling you and all of my conclusions that I've been jumping to. It's really fun to be able to put that out there every week and and have people appreciate it. So we're definitely going to talk about what we know today, one year later, what is the status of everything. I know everybody really wants to hear about what happened last week in Moscow, Idaho, and that is the tearing down of the main piece of evidence. I can't, I will will get into that later. I'm obviously going to update you guys on the potential trial date and what is happening there. And then I'm obviously going to talk about some of my own research that I've been doing sort of behind the scenes to, you know, understand how this all happened. I know we all just want to know why. And we can only work with the information that we have. But that's not just what's been released in the press. If you look at their social media, 
and uh, the conversations back and forth, there is a story to be told there. And I want to talk to you about some of the things that I've observed. But you know, let's talk about the elephant in the room. And that is 10 episodes in one year. And again, I said information has been slow, but it's really hard to find the time as a stay at home mom where my sole job is to make sure that everybody's needs are met at home every day. Uh, That can be a really tasking thing. And it's just all the little tiny things like cleaning up everyone's bowls of cereal every morning and making sure the dog gets walked and making sure that, you know, I'm cleaning up the messes faster than they're making them, which I've just decided is actually impossible. Uh, And then finding that time for a hobby that I, I mean, I don't get paid for this podcast. And uh, it certainly doesn't interest anyone in my household other than me. So finding that personal time to do that on top of everything else, it's just as difficult. And each episode takes about eight or nine hours to record, edit and publish. So you know, finding eight or nine hours in a week that are free to just me have been almost impossible, but I really want to try this year to get you at least one episode a month, if not more, until we get to a point when we have a trial starting and it's going to be, you know, a daily thing. Then when that kicks off, I'm, we might be a YouTube channel at that point. You know, I, I, my dream is to set up a little YouTube loft in my attic and be one of those people that's like recording late at night and, you know, have like sassy posters in the background, you know, like, I I don't like people, I only like my dog. (laughs) You guys get the vibe, right? You've seen those YouTube channels. If you're a sleuther, you've definitely been on them. But that's my dream is to have something like that up and going by the time the trial hits so that I'm not having to do all this publishing, I can just talk to you guys, record it in a video and have it out there, you know, right away. So uh, that's the reason why you have only had 10 episodes this year. Slow information, lack of self care. (laughs) I don't know, I could do better on the time management. But you know, it's sort of wondering what it is that you guys actually want to hear about. So I'm just gonna go with it, guys. We're just gonna go launch right in into what is the latest. And, you know, hopefully you guys care about all of this. I know you do. Okay, so last Thursday, We woke up to the news that the University of Idaho had demolished the home on King Road where these murders took place. It was shocking, shocking to everybody because, I mean, by all accounts, this is the main piece of evidence in a crime. We don't have a murder weapon. This is where it took place. There has not even been a jury selection yet. There isn't even a date for trial. And the university decided to completely level this house and bury it underground. This is what they did. So the owners of the home who owned it during the course of this murder, this crime, they donated the home to the University of Idaho to decide what they wanted to do with it. And coincidentally, Scott Green, the president of the university, is rumored to have grown up in the house. So actually, at one time, this home belonged to him and his family. And Scott Green felt that the home was a reminder of everything that happened. It's only 600 feet from their brand new Greek row. There are a lot of students living in the area, and he felt that it was a constant reminder of what happened. Well, of course, of course, Scott Green. So he made plans to demolish the house, and he gave 
the prosecution and the defense ample opportunities to go into the home and do what they needed to do to gather evidence for their side of the story. And they did. You know, it was well documented that several weeks before this demolition happened, you know, nobody had been in the house for a while, but the FBI came in and they took down all of the boards on the windows and they set up cameras inside. And it's rumored that they actually created like a virtual tour of the inside of the house, extremely detailed photographing all of the blood stains and things like that. And then the defense came in uh, and they did something similar. And then there was some pre-demo remediation where that's where they would remove any drywall, carpet, flooring, cement, anything in the house that contained, you know, blood splatter or any evidence of a crime. So they go in and they remove that discreetly before the demolition of the house. And then the demolition was scheduled for December 28th. And on the morning of December 28th, it was scheduled to begin at 7am. So the press showed up just before 7am with their cameras, uh, ready to start recording the demo. And guess what? It had already begun. It was halfway over. They started pre dawn in the dark, demolishing the house before most of the press had arrived. And by 7am, by the time that the demolition was supposed to begin, the house was gone. I find that very strange. I find it very unfair. And I I just am wondering what it is that they're trying to hide. You know, a magnificently gruesome crime took place in this house. And while it is alleged to be solved, who did it? There is so much to prove still. And this man is still building his case. And so in fairness to him, in fairness to the victims, I think it would have been better for them to leave the house standing until at the very least, you know, a decision could be made, does the jury need to go inside of this house? And I know for the families, they released a big statement saying how disappointed they were. They more than anybody want to see the house gone, but they also want to make sure that the person responsible is behind bars. Let's just play this back. What if it's not Brian Koberger? What if Brian Koberger proves beyond a doubt that he is 100% innocent? They have just demolished the single largest source of information, the largest piece of evidence, gone. They took it, they took it to a landfill, dug a hole and buried it. It's not even like, oh, we know where it is. It's dumped on these tarps in a field, you know, at a private place. Nope. It's gone, completely destroyed. I find this suspicious, highly irresponsible, offensive. I mean, you I could go on and on, but I was absolutely devastated. My husband's like, why are you watching that house get demolished over and over again? But it's just extremely upsetting. I would like to see justice for these four kids. And I want to make sure that justice is properly served. And so does everybody else involved in this. Every I don't know anybody that's glad to see it go. And I, you know, you go on University of Idaho pages and you know Instagrams. The students they they seem to be fine. I'm sorry that there's a daily reminder of what took place, but I highly doubt removing the house is going to make everybody forget what happened a year ago. There, their friends are still going to school there. Their friends who discovered their bodies. Okay, guys, let's let's be real serious here. The friends that went into the house that morning and discovered their bodies, 
Some of them are still at school with them. The friends that party with them the night before. Do you think that tearing down that house makes it go away for them? Come on. I just, I think it's bullshit. Sorry. Sorry for my young listeners, but it's bullshit. Maybe, Scott Green, it was too upsetting for you as a child who grew up in that house to look at it every day and know what had become of it. Maybe it was upsetting for you, Scott Green, to look at it every day and know that you were the president and that happened to students on your campus. Maybe you're afraid of getting sued for what happened because a university is responsible for their students, even when they're of age. So I don't know. I, I think it's it was an atrocious decision, and I can't even believe it was allowed. And I know I'm a little fired up right now. Sorry, everybody. I've had two extra large coffees. So <clears throat> that's how I feel about the situation. And thank you for letting me rant. I, you know, I should note that the prosecutor, Bill Thompson, said that the property is so different now than it was when the crime took place, meaning the furniture is all gone. And it's not the same layout that it was the night of the crime. So it wouldn't even be allowed to be used for a jury to walk through. But I, you know, I think there's more things that it could be used for than a jury walkthrough. I'm not going to purport to know more than the actual prosecutor on the case. But I just disagree with the decision. And, you know, the U of I spokeswoman, uh, Jody Walker, said that, there's actually no current plan for the former residential site. They don't have a plan to put up a memorial of any kind. They're simply going to regrade the land and plant some grass. And I think that is also pathetic. I think something should be done. And hopefully they are trying to piece together some sort of appropriate use of the land. It definitely should not just be an empty lot. I think that's gross. So hopefully that answers all of your questions around why the house was demolished, what the heck they were thinking. I'm not going to bore you with reading everybody's statements. I think the takeaway from this is the families are pissed, pissed that this happened. And the uh, prosecution, defense, and the university, they all believe that this was the right decision for everybody moving forward. Super strange, though. So what's going on? with the trial. That is what everybody wants to know. When is it happening? Now, there is no trial date set, but the prosecutor has asked for the trial to take place this coming summer. They have not scheduled a date yet, but that doesn't mean that nothing is happening. In fact, just yesterday, there was an article about the fact that Brian Koberger is still trying to get this case thrown out. Fascinating. Article reads, Brian Koberger, the man accused of killing four University of Idaho students, has asked a judge to reconsider the orders denying him his motions to have the indictment against him dismissed. Koberger is charged with four counts of murder and one count of burglary. That's entering the home. That's not stealing things. Okay, blah, blah, blah. He was arrested at his parents' home in Pennsylvania after investigators pieced together DNA evidence, cell phone data, and surveillance video that they say links him to the crime. The judge entered not guilty pleas on Koberger's behalf last year. He faces the death penalty if convicted. A trial date has not been set, but County Prosecutor Bill Thompson has asked for it to be scheduled for this summer. 
Okay, last year, Koberger's attorneys filed motions asking Judge John Judge to throw out the grand jury indictment against Koberger, alleging the prosecution improperly withheld evidence from grand jurors. Koberger's lawyers also argued that the jurors were biased and that there was insufficient evidence to justify the indictment. Judge rejected the arguments last month. In another effort to get the indictment tossed, Koberger's attorneys filed a motion on December 21st requesting Judge reconsider his previous orders, denying the motions to dismiss the indictment. On December 28th, the same day the House was torn down, the judge scheduled a closed-door hearing to hear arguments pertaining to the motion, seeking to dismiss the indictment on the grounds of a biased grand jury, inadmissible and insufficient evidence, and prosecutorial misconduct. It is scheduled for 11 a.m. on January 26th. The hearing will be sealed and closed to the public to protect the privacy of the grand jurors and the grand jury's procedures. Judge scheduled the public hearing for 1 p.m. that day to hear arguments about dismissing the indictment on the grounds that inaccurate instructions were provided to grand jurors. Following that, a public hearing on Thompson's request to schedule the trial date will begin. Judge wrote in a December 15th ruling that Koberger's defense attorneys had failed to successfully challenge the indictment. Koberger was, quote, indicted by an impartial grand jury who had sufficient admissible evidence to find probable cause to believe Koberger committed the crimes alleged by the state, he wrote. Further, the state did not engage in prosecutorial misconduct in presenting their case to the jury. In their other motion to dismiss the indictment, Koberger's attorneys had argued that the grand jury was given inaccurate instructions and used the wrong standard of proof, arguing that the standard of, quote, beyond a reasonable doubt should have been used rather than the lower threshold of, quote, probable cause. So just so we're clear here, he's saying that it should be completely thrown out because they didn't use the word beyond reasonable doubt. They just said probable cause. If he thinks that that's going to work, I'm sorry. That's absurd. But thank God for Judge, because he wrote that there is no dispute that the correct standard of probable cause was used. The grand jury is not a trial jury. Its function is to screen whether or not there is sufficient evidence to proceed with a trial. The arguments from the defense for a, quote, beyond reasonable doubt standard for the jury were historically interesting and creative, Judge added. But do not overturn Idaho court's interpretation of the statute, case law, and criminal rules, and the standard for the grand jury to indict is probable cause. So basically, he's saying, wow, that's the first time I've ever heard that. It's pretty friggin' unique, but that's not gonna fly, sir. Interestingly, a gag order remains in place on prosecution, defense attorneys, and law enforcement officials from discussing the case in public. So if you caught all that, that means coming up in January, in two weeks, we are going to have, I'm sorry, three weeks, we are going to have a first closed door meeting with the defense and prosecution and the judge where they present their case to have the motions dismissed. And then they're going to do some stuff publicly. They're going to talk about it a little bit. And it doesn't sound like the judge is particularly interested in dismissing this case. But if he did, that would be absolutely wild. Uh, It sounds like the defense is reaching big time. And then after that, they're going to have another public hearing for the prosecution. It sounds like the same day to schedule a trial date. So hopefully by the end of this month, We will have a trial date and we will know 
when it's going to be. And I'm going to book my flight to Idaho. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but damn, wouldn't that be great? I mean, I, I don't know. I've been fooled before, but it sounds to me like this judge is not just going to let this entire thing be thrown out over some bullshit use of words. Sorry, I keep cursing, guys. I don't know what's wrong with me. That's my that's my word of the day. So sorry about that. Um, but it sounds like he's not going to toss this out over something minuscule. And I'm glad for that because, I don't know, in this day and age, you know, stranger things have happened. Let's just put it that way. So that's like the housekeeping stuff that's going on with it. Now, what's going on on the sleuthy side of it? Like, that's all stuff you guys can figure out if you were reading into it as in-depth as I am. But I feel like you're relying on me for that, some of you. That's fine. That's fine. Um, So the stuff that's going on on the sleuthy side, what am I looking into trying to put this puzzle together on my own with very limited information. I, you know, found myself over the break going back through the social media accounts. And there's a few things that struck me that never struck me before. And some of you might be like, duh, I knew that. But for me, there was just so much in the beginning. Now I'm looking back on it. And, you know, there's some things that are sticking out. Number one, on Maddie Mogan's TikTok, the very last video that she posted was on Halloween, which was only two weeks before this all took place. And uh, it's a video featuring Dylan and her roommate, Dylan Mortensen. And in that video, Dylan is at the end of her evening. She is crying her what was once a, you know, sexy leather sort of uh, I don't know. It was like some superhero get up. I, I don't, I'm not with the times, kids. But at the beginning of the night, she looked great. End of the night, she looked like a hot mess. She looked like a drunk girl who'd been dumped by her boyfriend, you know, halfway through the party and whose friends were consoling her. And it was sort of poking fun at her. I'm not really sure. You know, we won't, we'll never know what happened because Maddie was just making a joke. But I noticed that it wasn't a super kind video, but maybe she was in on the joke. I assume that she was. The sound in the video was something about never wearing this outfit again. And when I scrolled back through the uh, thousands of comments, because it's, you know, somebody dies and it's a famous murder and it's a public account, thousands of people are commenting. But I tried to go back to the beginning of the comments to see how the video was received. And sure enough, Dylan commented and she said, absolutely not. But I don't know, is that like the joking, like, take this down, absolutely not, this is ridiculous? Or was she like, absolutely not, I'll never be wearing this costume again because I looked like a train wreck? I don't know. But either way, it's poking fun at Dylan. Doesn't lend itself to the fact that people are suspicious of Dylan. I don't really think there is a need to be suspicious of her. It's not, it just, it's not a good look. So that was interesting to me, you know, to go back and look at what some of those final interactions were. And that got me into looking at what videos Maddie had been watching leading up to uh, being killed and, you know, where her head was at. You know, did she have any sort of inkling? Was somebody stalking her? Was she, you know, liking videos uh, about self-defense? You know, I don't know. You just, your mind goes in weird directions. So I went back and looked, and it's all very, very typical, but something stuck out to me, and that is that in the six months prior to being killed, she was liking a lot of videos that focus on um, health and wellness and bodybuilding and 
you know, health journeys, that she was interested in becoming healthier. And, you know, that seems normal, right? Of course, you know, you're going to graduate college soon, you've been drinking for four years, you're like, I gotta, you know, get my act together and become a healthier person. I think she had recently gone through a breakup with her boyfriend, and possibly was looking for something positive to focus on. This is all very normal. And even going into one of her best friend's Instagram pages, she wrote a beautiful tribute to the girls in the days following the murder. And what she said was uh, that basically Maddie and Zana had encouraged her to um, do bodybuilding, to start a fitness journey of her own. And she has spent the last year basically becoming a much healthier person. She has a very muscular physique now. She's clearly spent a lot of time and effort in the gym on her fitness, trying to live out this dream that her friends encouraged her to do the day before they died. And I found that interesting because it sort of confirmed my feelings that this was something that was circulating in Maddie's head. Now, why do I care? Why do I care about Maddie being concerned about health and wellness? Guess who else is obsessed with health and wellness, which is ironic for a potential murderer, Brian Koberger. Brian Koberger was vegan. He was running a lot. He was lifting weights. He was very obsessed with becoming this fit, strong version of himself. And that's well documented. So did they run into each other? Is that how they met? Is that how their paths crossed? Maybe he wasn't just scrolling through Instagram looking at University of Idaho sorority chicks whose profiles were public, you know, that would just make it so random. He seems to me a very particular person, and he picked her for a very particular reason. So my, I don't know, my suspicion is that somehow relating to that journey, somehow their paths crossed. It's a huge conclusion to jump to because many college kids are interested in this kind of thing. But I sort of felt like it was validated for me when I saw that one of her closest friends immediately started that health and wellness journey after Maddie was killed, inspired by Maddie. Super interesting. And it's just, again, another sort of thought and theory on how on earth this lunatic got to be in contact with these girls. Did he follow her home from the gym? Did he follow her home from the health food store where she was getting protein? Like, I don't know. It's just, uh, it's, it's a coincidence, but it's another way that their paths could have crossed. Like a lot of people in the beginning were saying that the girls, Maddie and Zana worked, was it Maddie and Zana? might have been all three of them. They worked at the Mad Greek, which was a vegan restaurant, one of the only vegan restaurants in the entire area. So, you know, is it more likely that he saw her there? Sure. But uh, again, that he could have tried to strike up a conversation with her. You just never know. But I do think that it's that health and wellness journey for him that brought him to this house in particular. And I do now firmly believe that Maddie was the actual target, that Kaylee was just collateral because she happened to be there that weekend. You know, I know Maddie was killed quickly. Kaylee put up a bit of a struggle. That struggle caused some noise to occur. 
And because Xana was awake on TikTok, it has been documented, she went to put her bag of food in the kitchen or whatever, and came out to discover Brian on his way down. And he was then onto her, followed her into the room, killed Ethan and her, and then was on his way out. He might have seen Dylan, he might have not seen her, but he was done at that point. He went in planning to kill one person, ended up killing four, causing a big mess, and he had to get the hell out of there before somebody called 911. You know, in his mind, they might have already called 911, which leads me to the last thing that I have been looking into, and that is, what is the route that Brian Koberger took home? Where did he dispose of whatever evidence he had on him? Because as far as we know, they don't have a murder weapon. They don't have bloody clothes. Where did those things go? So law enforcement did an excellent job of collecting information about his sort of movements that night. And they timed his peeling out of King Road at 420 in the morning. And then he is not seen again until 448 a.m. where he is back on CCTV at his apartment in Pullman, Washington. So that's a very precise timeline. And because of cell phone towers and the timeline, the police were able to piece together what route he took home. So I checked out that route and it's desolate, dark, empty farm roads. There's literally nothing there except farmhouses and silos I mean, there's nothing, nobody. And my guess is that he did not want to be caught by police. So maybe, who knows, maybe he was listening to a police scanner on his phone to see if he could pick up if 911 had been called. Maybe he was buying himself a little bit of time. And when he realized that no one had called 911, nothing was happening, he made his way back to Pullman. But there is no time in that timeline for him to stop his car and dispose of evidence. None. I mean, minute for minute, it is exactly from A to B. You go and you map it out. And uh, if he was going the speed limit and driving those roads carefully, there's absolutely not one single minute where he could have stopped and gotten rid of evidence. But he did, several hours later, leave the house and make his way back to King Road. Was it to retrieve the sheath? And then when he realized that, I don't know, he was too big of a chicken or there were too many people around, when he realized that he could not do that, he began to drive south. And he drove very far south this time to a place called Clarkston. Now, there is a three-hour gap of time between when he is pinged in Moscow, Idaho, and when he appears on surveillance at Kate's Cup of Joe in Clarkston. Now, there's something else in Clarkston besides Kate's Cup of Joe, and that is a massive river and a huge bridge. And from what I can tell, there's no surveillance footage on that bridge. There were no cameras that I could see on Google Maps. Actually, there's multiple bridges. I looked at multiple. I didn't see cameras. Um, So I'm just curious... Do they know where he was in that two-hour time? There's a lot of dirt roads. There's a lot of nothing out there on the way to Clarkston. So I'm wondering if that was the time when he got rid of the evidence. And did he go back looking for the sheath, knowing that he was going to be getting rid of the evidence at that point in time? It's another 
super interesting timeline that I'm looking forward to hearing about uh, the details of in the trial. So that's all I've got for you today, guys. It seems like in a couple of weeks, we're going to have a very interesting uh, public hearing that will follow, you know, whatever went on behind closed doors. And at that point in time, we're going to have a pretty good understanding of when this trial should happen. And hopefully Brian Koberger will feel very defeated because it seems to me like he is really uninterested in going to trial. He is trying very, very hard to have this all thrown away. And uh, he's not just like, oh, I'm just going to sit back, relax and wait for my trial to begin. He's pulling out all the stops. So that's all I've got for you guys until the end of January, where we're going to hopefully have some solid information on when the trial is, and whether or not Brian Koberger was successful in getting everything thrown out. I'm going to go with not. Um, I'd put some money down on that. Uh, But anyways, stay tuned. Thanks again for sticking with me throughout the last year. And uh, I hope it's going to be another exciting year with a lot more information, and maybe even a little YouTube appearance. So thanks for tuning in, guys. Until next time, good luck out there in the wild. Bye.